This week, why is English the language of science? Obviously, great steps were taken in, in English in science in the 19th and 20th centuries. But I think that wasn't the reason why English took over. And when to start the Anthropocene? They were required to have one marker that can be precisely dated, that's captured in some kind of geological, natural material. Plus, a new way to catch carbon before it gets into the atmosphere. This is The Nature Podcast for the 12th of March, 2015. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Jeff Marsh. First this week, why one language became the scientist's lingo of choice and which others have raced for that prize throughout history. One general law leading to the advancement of all organic beings, namely, multiply, vary, let the strongest live and the weakest die. That was a quotation from Darwin's seminal work, The Origin of Species. It was written and published in English. Perhaps that's unsurprising, as Darwin was an Englishman. But would it have been written in his mother tongue if he'd been Welsh? Or Finnish? Or Greek? Darwin was actually a fairly poor linguist, so he may well have stuck with his mother tongue, even if it wasn't English. But scientists want their work to be widely read, and sadly, writing in Finnish or Welsh isn't going to achieve that goal. Today, almost all science is published in English, but that hasn't always been the case. In Darwin's day, the origin may have had an even bigger splash in French or German. So why has English become science's second language? Princeton scholar Michael Gordon has written a book about this very subject called Scientific Babel. Gordon looks back at the history of science and the languages in which it was done. The book has been reviewed this week in Nature and the reviewer, Andrew Robinson, came into the studio to tell me a bit more. New words always have to be invented when a language is, is, is used for new scientific concepts. And that creates real problems because there's no language which is naturally designed to discuss science. After the birth of science, Latin, ancient Greek and Arabic were among the languages in which science was done. But by the time of the Italian Renaissance, there was a shift towards one scientific language. Said enitat ut latine loquar, nisi in huiuse modi verbis. You find increasingly in the early period and then the later period of the Italian Renaissance that Latin is the dominant language for science, but that eventually changes. And you find that Galileo, for instance, starts in Latin and then moves into Italian for his later works. La filosofia è scritta in questo grandissimo libro che continuamente ci sta aperto innanzi. Quite a lot of people didn't know Latin very well, even in the period that we're talking about, the 17th century. Some did, but there was obviously a, a felt need among scientists to communicate with, with those who, who were not confident in Latin. This was the beginning of the end for Latin, and the beginning of a long journey which led to English becoming the dominant language of today. So why? I think it was luck. I mean, obviously great steps were taken in, in English in science in the 19th and 20th centuries. That goes without saying, but I think that wasn't the reason why English took over. I think for that you really have to look at politics, economics 
and the fact that it's more convenient for most scientists to communicate in one language. Wollen wir die Bewegung eines materiellen Punktes beschreiben, so geben wir die Werte seiner Koordinaten in Funktion der Zeit. That was an excerpt from Einstein's paper in which he describes special relativity. It was published in German. If you go back to 19, well, 1905 when Einstein publishes Special Relativity, roughly a third is in German of global scientific output, a bit less in French, a bit less in English. And there's a major problem because scientists simply don't know the three languages. They may know one or two, but they don't know all three. And they're very concerned about that. Uh, but no solution really is found until after the First World War, when there is a tremendous boycott of German science. The German scientific boycott, along with the Second World War, would spell the end for German's dominance as a scientific language. French, too, would gradually decline in its use. But the rise of the Soviet Union led to another player in the scientific language game. In the 40s and 50s, the Russians had a very serious commitment to educating their scientists in English and Russian. And on the American side, there was a massive government effort from the late 40s to the early 60s to translate dozens of, of Russian language journals cover to cover, uh, including all the propaganda, Uh, and by 1961, there were 85 cover-to-cover -cover translations of Russian journals being published in America, all paid for by government funding. English had been a popular choice for science throughout the 20th century, but it wasn't until the beginning of the 1990s that the dominance it sees today was definitively established. It was pretty obvious by then that, that what the trend was, uh, and the fall of the Soviet Union accelerated that. Uh, and I think um, although Russian uh, science still uses a lot of Russian in Russia, it ceased to be a force in international science. If Russian scientists want to publish abroad, they publish in English. It might be accepted that science is published and discussed in English, but scientists are free to do their thinking in any language they like. I think it's undoubtedly important for creativity and for genius, you know, that you know a certain language well, uh, Einstein made it very clear that he needed to think in German. I mean, there are famous stories, I will a little tink, and then he disappears into a dream and starts thinking, obviously, in German. Uh, but I think when it comes to actually publishing uh, what you've discovered in an intelligible form, I don't think it's important what language it appears in, as long as large numbers of people are able to read it and understand it. That was Andrew Robinson, author of many books on language and whose most recent one is about Einstein. His review of Michael Gordon's book Scientific Babel is at nature.com slash news slash books and arts. Thanks to Noah for that package. Coming up in the research highlights, menopausal whales who know a thing or two about hunting and a very old fossil jaw on the human line. But first, every year, burning fossil fuels releases more than 13 billion tonnes of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. That, as you know, contributes to climate change. One way to ease the situation is to stop CO2 reaching the air in the first place. Just somehow suck it up before it escapes. And then store it, return it to the Earth. Buried deep enough, it will reabsorb. Easy enough concept, but difficult to pull off. 
Pulling CO2 out of the air is not the biggest problem. There are liquids and materials that can bind CO2. But getting them to let go of the CO2 in order to store it, that's harder. Current technologies need a lot of energy to release the CO2 they've collected, which kind of defeats the object. Enter Jeff Long and his team at the University of California, Berkeley. They've developed a new material that works in a different way and could be a promising alternative. And it lets go of carbon without having to be heated to high temperatures. It uses some of the same organic compounds as previous approaches. You'll hear Jeff call them amines. Here's Jeff. The technology that we have currently that's the most thoroughly developed, they're based on aqueous solutions of organic molecules. And those, those react very selectively with carbon dioxide uh, that's coming out of the, the flue gas from the power plant. And then after you saturate the solution with carbon dioxide, you want to drive it off in pure form. And so you would heat up those solutions to very high temperatures, and that regenerates the adsorbent solution to then start another cycle. Slightly ironic that you have to use energy to heat this stuff to get the carbon out. Yeah, and so that's a big part of the problem. So really the, the main problem with these capture solutions is that you have to heat to above, generally above 120 degrees C uh, to get the CO2 out of the solution. And that's taking very valuable um, heat away from electricity production in the power plant. And that energy penalty for the current technology is, is roughly 30% which means that the plant would have to burn 30% more coal or natural gas in order to do the capture. And this is the reason we're having a chat, Jeff, isn't it? Because you've got a, um, a new material, if you like, that's, uh, that you're reporting in Nature this week that appears to be doing a lot better of a job. Yeah, that's right. So we're very excited about this material because it actually, quite unexpectedly, it captures carbon dioxide in a, in a quite a new way, in a different way from other amine-based adsorbents. And all of those work based on a mechanism where two of the amine units get together and react with a CO2 molecule to make what's called an ammonium carbamate. And it turns out that one of the new materials that we made in our lab actually works uh, via a different mechanism. And it's one where carbon dioxide inserts into a metal amine bond and that forms an ammonium carbamate, but it actually forms these one-dimensional chains of the ammonium carbamates. Um, and that's triggering the next metal down the channel of the material to become open and, and ready to react with carbon dioxide. And that continues um, down the channel of the material until you create a, a one-dimensional uh, chain of these CO2-containing molecules. And so that was completely serendipitous. We, we really did not um, predict this new mechanism for, for capturing carbon dioxide. Um, but my graduate student, Tom McDonald, um, he recognized from the properties that, that there was something different going on here than in other amine-based adsorbents, uh, and he pursued it. So this way of collecting CO2 is pretty similar to the one that plants use. They use an enzyme called Rubisco. Yeah, that's right. Plants use uh, a magnesium cation with a very similar environment to what we have in our material to capture carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. And so this is a key step in photosynthesis. What Rubisco can't do, 
um, is it doesn't have this cooperative effect when it captures carbon dioxide. It doesn't have this chain reaction. You know, in some ways, we, we like to think we may have found something that's even an improvement on uh, this natural enzyme. Tree 2.0. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> How much better is this material than existing technologies at capturing carbon and then, crucially, letting it go again once it's captured it for storage? That's a great question, and, and right now it's a difficult one to answer. We've discovered this material in our laboratory, and we make a few grams of it at a time usually. You know, to actually figure out the energy involved, you have to test it at much larger scales. But we think we can get the energy penalty for a coal-fired power plant down from 30% with the current amines to below 15%, um, perhaps even well below. And Jeff Long and the team have recently made half a kilogram of their material and started a company to try and scale it up and apply it to a working power plant. Find the paper and a News and Views article at nature.com slash nature. Research highlights now with Noah Baker. A jawbone found in Ethiopia is the earliest fossil ever found on the line that led to humans. At almost three million years old, the jaw pushes back the origins of our genus Homo by nearly half a million years. Features in the jaw can tell you a lot about a creature's lifestyle. Big, strong jaws are usually more primitive. Lighter ones tend to crop up once our ancestors had stone tools to crush or grind food. This newly found old jaw has aspects of both, suggesting it could fill a gap between humans and more distant ancestors. The paper appeared in Science. With age comes wisdom. And it turns out that's true for killer whales. Killer whales are one of the very few animals, alongside humans, whose females survive long past reproductive age. They can live into their 90s. Why the females live so long is an open question. A new study suggests that the oldies are the ones with the fishing know-how. Older females were more likely to lead group hunts for salmon, especially in years when they were hard to find. You go, Grandma. The paper is in Current Biology. You've probably come across the term Anthropocene. It's a popular name for the epoch we live in, but it's an informal geological term. Technically, right now we're in the Holocene, and given that these official timings form the bedrock of geology, official name changes only happen at a glacial pace. Nevertheless, the Anthropocene aims to encapsulate the unprecedented effects that humans have had on all aspects of the environment, the land surface, oceans, atmosphere and the life it sustains. And these changes have become so large and varied and may persist so far into the future that many think now we should be looking at an official change of epoch. For geologists to make such a change, they have to meet strict formal criteria and importantly, pick a specific date to start the geological unit of time. Simon Lewis is an ecologist from University College London. He's teamed up with a geologist colleague and they've written a review together about all the major potential start dates that people have proposed for this epoch and checked those against those formal criteria. And they've narrowed it down to two. What are the formal requirements for something to be renamed as an epoch? Uh, so one re- 
main requirement is to have global long-term changes to the Earth as a system. So an epoch might last typically several million years. And then on top of that, they're required to have one marker that can be precisely dated that's captured in some kind of geological natural material. So ancient glacier ice or sediment from the ocean floor or rocks. I'm sure our listeners have some ideas in their heads of key events in in humans' history that you were looking at. Why don't you just tell me a list of some of those that you were checking up against these formal criteria? Well, it could have been right from the earliest use of fire or the megafauna extinctions in the Pleistocene or the dawn of agriculture or the meeting of the new and the old worlds or the Industrial Revolution, or the great acceleration of these really big changes that we've seen in the uh, second half of the 20th century. And really only two of those matched those criteria. So the first was the meeting of the old and new worlds, so when Europeans arrived in the Americas. Following that, there was an exchange of species, and that's a geologically unprecedented event to have species jump across oceans. And was the global effect of that just the sort of swapping of genes and the shifting biodiversity patterns? Not just that. When Europeans arrived in the Americas, they brought European diseases with them. And about 50 million indigenous peoples of the Americas died very rapidly in the early decades of the 16th century. And nearly all of those people were farmers. And those farmlands grew back to close to the original vegetation. And about half the dry weight of a tree is carbon. And that stopping of farming across a continent removed enough carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere to see a dip in CO2 of about 7 to 10 parts per million that you can see in the ice core records in Antarctica. And the second key event in our history that you have you've pulled out from the literature as a key candidate for the beginning of the Anthropocene is much more recent, isn't it? Yes. So the other one is the fallout from nuclear testing, which had a peak in 1964. So from 1945 onwards, there are increasing numbers of tests of nuclear weapons. And then in 1963, the Test Ban Treaty came into force and most of those stopped. So you can actually see this uh, spike in radionuclear fallout in sediments all over the world. So it provides a very, very good marker and is also coincident with all the other big changes that we've seen in terms of climate and ocean acidification and the production of um, long-lived novel chemicals that we've seen from the middle of the 20th century onwards. Like plastics. And stuff. Exactly. Yeah. Now, of course, you're not allowed to choose two dates. If we do end up you know, formally changing to the Anthropocene, which of these two dates do you think stands out as a, the best candidate? It's a very difficult choice between the two. I tend to go with 1610 and the dip in CO2 and the exchange of species because that's geologically unprecedented to have this repeated switching of continents of species. I think the evolutionary consequences of that, you know, that's pushing the Earth onto a new evolutionary trajectory. Is this unprecedented that an essentially biological phenomena would demarcate one of these boundaries? Uh, No, uh, biological changes, extinction events and the evolution of new species is a common way of um, marking geological time periods much further back in the past. If we were to formalise the Anthropocene, what would happen to the current epoch, the Holocene? Would we keep that? Would we be part of that or would that be discarded? Well, that's also a a tricky follow-up question. A Holocene is supposed to be an epoch, something that lasts several millions to perhaps tens of millions of years, but will have actually lasted 
uh, maybe 11,500. So it's several orders of magnitude too short. So my suggestion would be that we're going to have to drop that down a notch and uh, call it a, a stage rather than an epoch. So it would just become the last stage of the Pleistocene epoch, and then we would start the Anthropocene straight away on the end of the Pleistocene. What impacts would, would an official change of epoch have beyond geology? Beyond geology, it would really mark humans as a geological force of nature and show that we're having major and varied impacts on the global environment. Then we're going to have to make decisions about what kinds of environmental changes are acceptable and which ones are unacceptable and have some kind of framework for making those kind of large-scale decisions. And it's not just whether we rename to Anthropocene or not. I suppose what date we choose for the emergence of the Anthropocene would also affect its impact on our relationship with the Earth. I think which date gets chosen paints a different picture about the relationship of humans to the environment. If it's 1610, then it says, okay, this is about trade and the movement of species and colonialism. But if it's about nuclear weapons, then this is really a technology that threatened destruction that we actually have got together globally and managed to, so far, manage that problem so that it hasn't come to fruition. So it tells a bit of a different story. That was Simon Lewis from University College London. There's also a feature about the Anthropocene this week, and you can read that for free at nature.com slash news. Take a look at the cover too, which you can also find at that URL, which boasts an artist's interpretation of the Anthropocene epoch. It's pretty cool. Finally this week comes the news, and incoming into the studio, Ewan Calloway. Now, smartphone science first. Uh, Many smartphones now come pre-equipped with a ton of apps. You can measure your sleep patterns, how much exercise you're doing... Loads of other health data. What's new in this field? On March 9th, Apple, manufacturer of uh, the iPhone, uh, announced that they were, in addition to having apps that allow people to to track these things, they were going to create an interface called ResearchKit that makes it uh, easier for people to share this data with researchers. Researchers can now recruit for clinical studies using an iPhone. New types of data that they haven't recorded with smartphones before or similar things that people have been tracking for a while? Uh, Both. I mean, they're using capabilities that smartphones already have. So I think some of the apps will use the accelerometer to measure, you know, how far you've walked in in a certain time. And they're allowing people to design custom apps. So I think there's one to test reflexes for for Parkinson's disease, and they have you kind of tap um, back and forth on your keypad to measure your, your reflexes. So it's open source, this software. So it's basically up to the researcher and developer community to figure out ways to get the information they want out of an iPhone. And the benefits seem quite obvious to researchers. I mean, basically, volume is one. Yeah, I was watching a video, the very slick video that Apple put up uh, with the announcement. They quote one researcher who said she sent out about, out about uh, tens of thousands of letters to people to end up with several hundred uh, in, a, in a study. And now you think that millions and millions of people all over the world own iPhones and just basically by downloading an app and you know signing up and giving consent, uh, you could maybe get many more people involved in a research study. 
research studies and clinical studies are anonymized. Is this going to be a problem for data that's kept um, on an iPhone, uploaded to servers, used by researchers? I mean, potentially. I think that's that's always a worry, especially when you're dealing with vulnerable people, patients with with diseases that they don't want to share with everyone. And Apple says that the data is de-identified when it's uploaded uh, to the researchers. And patients, uh, according to Apple, have control over their data. So they can choose, I believe, to to opt out. And they can choose uh, to share their data just with uh, the researchers conducting the study or with a larger community of researchers. But I think there's going to be a lot of questions going forward about how uh, researchers and patients interact. You mentioned Parkinson's. What other types of conditions are um, are researchers hoping to monitor? Well, I think the the ones they've they've launched so far, which are involving nonprofits and universities and hospitals, are Parkinson's, as you said, asthma, breast cancer, diabetes, heart health. But as I said earlier, uh, this interface is open source. And so researchers studying anything in theory could use this interface. All right. So you in the second story, uh, it's a bit more technical, I'm going to say. This is about uh, a meeting that geneticists had last month to discuss the rate at which human DNA is mutating. Have I got that right? Yeah, the human mutation rate. Mutations are the stuff of evolution, right? I mean, they're they're the basis for, you know, all differences. Uh, They're the causes of disease, etc., etc. And biologists have been trying for nearly 100 years to figure out how quickly DNA mutates from one generation to the next. And this meeting that I, that I covered was the latest effort to, to get to grips with what, what we know about it. And the basic news is that the human mutation rate is a lot slower than we thought. So mutations, as you said, are key because diseases are caused by them, but also we can use them to track the evolution of populations over time, you know, the separation of, say, ourselves from our chimpanzee relatives. And the mutation rate, as I think of it, is kind of the Greenwich mean time, right, of, of genetics. Yeah, don't tell the scientists that, uh, because one one of the, the things that kind of emerged at this meeting is that the human mutation rate isn't constant, that it is probably changed over evolutionary time. Right. So it's like a, you know, Mad Hatter's Tea Party kind of a clock at the moment. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So what is, uh, given these caveats, it might not be constant. People have come up with very different rates. What is the kind of accepted rate right now? The organizer of the meeting, David Reich at, at Harvard, who I think is a frequent guest on the podcast, um, proposed at the end of the meeting that that the community, even though they you know, they're not certain about the mutation rate, that they agree on a, a consensus value to use, and that's this slower rate. I'm trying to, trying to figure out how to, how to explain it, that the average DNA letter mutates once every 2 billion years. Are those mutations, those are the ones that stick around and make it through, or those are just all mutations total, some of which will kill your organism and not make it? Yeah, that's actually a really important issue because... Um, you know, mutations are occurring all the time. Uh, they're occurring in lots of different tissues. But the ones that the geneticists uh, are interested in are the ones that are passed on to the next generation. Um, so these are the ones that occur in egg and sperm cells. What about the implications of, of mutation rate for disease? This is something that was discussed at, at the meeting. Mutations are the source of all heritable diseases. And 
you know, there's there's keen interest among among biomedical scientists. One interesting uh, issue that was talked about was something called the paternal age effect. There are a lot of diseases that seem to be more common in children of older fathers. Some very rare forms of dwarfism and body deformation, but also autism, schizophrenia, and some other more common diseases. And one possible explanation, especially for the common diseases, is the fact that older fathers pass on more mutations. And that's because their sperm is being constantly pumped out over a lifetime from sperm stem cells. And so these cells are dividing over and over again. And so uh, the older the father, the more divisions. And so you have a, you pass on more mutations, basically. Okay. Well, Ewan, you wrote the story on human mutation rate, which appears in Nature this week, so nature.com slash news, where you'll also find a Q&A by Helen Shen about Apple's new research kit. That's it for this week. In just a day or two, we'll be releasing the next episode of our Sound Science series, Audio File. This one tells the story of how music has influenced science and how a musical father influenced his scientist son. Look out for that on your podcast feed or on nature.com. And let us know what you think of the series by email at podcast at nature.com or on Twitter, if you're that way inclined, at Nature Podcast. Join us again next time. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Jeff Mush. <laughs>